Okay, let's get started. We do have a homework due today, so if you have it, I'll take it. You can drop it off between class and lab or afterwards. If you're going to be mailing it, just make sure I get it by the end of the day. You do have a quiz up on WebCT that is available through Sunday, so you'll be able to do that anytime between now and the end of the day Sunday. And you have an exam coming up on Monday. Yay! Come on. Okay. I tried very, very hard on this one. I finished making it up yesterday. And I tried very hard. Those review sheets I gave you, use them. There's, all three should be up there. But I went through those and as I was selecting questions, I marked and I was checking off on the sheet that I was taking some of those on those review, now maybe not question word for word, but the topic that's covered. So I tried to make sure that if it's not on the review sheet, you don't need to worry about it. So, so I'm sure other times I did things where I said, well, I know I talked about that three times in class, but I didn't, maybe it didn't make it to the review sheet. So I really went through it very carefully this time. So I want to see grades go up. <laughs> so do you guys, I know. But, so I was very careful on it. So use those three review sheets. They're all up on WebCT, so you can get to all of them. And I did put up the one for the chapter 13 as well now. So you have them for 13, 14, and 15. But I used them exactly when I made up the exam this time. And then there is an iTunes quiz that will be available next week. It's actually, I've got it set. It'll be available. Actually, it'll, right now it's set to appear on Monday morning. It'll be available to take anytime Monday morning. So you can take it anytime Monday through the following Sunday. And that is the last of the iTunes ones. And then I will look at those three and your lowest grade of those three gets dropped. So if you've gotten, if you did perfect on the other two, you don't even need to bother because that one's going to get dropped in. I'm not dropping the other quizzes. It's only the three iTunes ones. I drop one of those. So if you've done poorly on one or you missed one, then you have a chance to make it up because that one, will, is, which is now being added into your grade, will get dropped out of your grade and this one will get added in. So I recommend taking it anyway. It can't hurt you. But if you've got 12s on the first two, then it's not going to help you no matter what you get. So. And the other thing that I've added in here is your observation data. Not your observation write-up. That's not due to the last day of class. But I need your data by the 27th. That's actually, I put Sunday. You can turn it in Monday in class too is, is fine. Because I'm not going to, what I'm going to do is one of the days that week, it won't be Monday because I know what I have to still have something to do then, but either Wednesday or Friday. So either Wednesday we'll do a lab or Friday we'll do a double lab. But I'm going to go through and I'm going to give you some data and we're going to go through and do the calculations and the graphs in class. So you will go through all that. You still got to do the write up part, but I'm going to give you my numbers to use. But in order for me to give you my numbers, I want to see what you've done. Because it's not fair for people who've worked on it all semester and been making observations for me to give numbers out and then have other people say, well, I can use those and pretend I made numbers. So I want to see your numbers before I give you mine. So turn those in. Again, you can turn them in next week. You can email them to me. And I said the 27th, but honestly, you, as long as you get them to me by Monday in class or something is fine, is, will, will not be a problem. Because right now I'm looking at scheduling it for Wednesday, but it may switch to Friday and just do a double lab on Friday. It just depends on where we are class-wise on everything else and what naturally splits things up. So, so do turn that in to me. I'm not going to be grading it. I just want to have it there. So you can, if you have it in a, in a data file, you can email it to me. That's fine. I'll put it in and check you off on my list that I've gotten it. But the other thing that this will help you with is that if you didn't get enough observations or you got bad observations, you had some problems with them, or you didn't make any observations, or you made something else wrong, you can use my data and you can do the rest of the assignment. 
So you're not stuck with, if you haven't done anything, you're not stuck with a zero out of 120. That's 10% of your grade. That's a lot. So if you ha even if you haven't made a single observation, you can take my data. Okay, you'll lose points for not having observations. I'm going to tell you that. You know, you'll lose 25 to 30 points. But 90 out of 120 is a lot better than zero when it averages into your final grade. So you'll still be able to do that. You'll do the graphs and the calculations in class, so that should help everything. Then you just have to do the rest of the write-up for it. And we'll do that that week, and then you have till the end of the following week to actually turn everything in. So that's actually due the last day of class, which is the ninth. Not the final exam. I need it before then <laughs> so I can actually get them graded. So that should help. But I do need that, again, by by a week from Monday. So you've got the next week. And that doesn't mean you stop making, you can have to stop making observations when you turn it in either. You can keep going afterwards. I just, basically I'm just checking up, making sure who's made the observations and who has it. If you haven't, you still have an option. You know, you're not stuck with a zero on that assignment. Questions? Okay. Picture of the moon today. Pretty picture. Wouldn't the moon looked like that every night. Wouldn't that be cool to go out there and look at, huh? all the different glowing colors of the moon. Does it look like our moon, though? Doesn't look like what you're used to seeing when you see the surface of the moon, does it? We're looking at the far side. This is actually the back side of the moon. No, it's, no it doesn't glow red and blue like that. But this is the part of the moon that we, have never, we had never seen until, what was it, about 50, 50 years ago now or so, in the first First flights, first satellites actually were sent off Earth and around the moon to actually map the dark side. And we actually have an orbiter, the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter, is orbiting the moon and taking images here. And it's been taking images from different angles. So as you take images from different angles, you can put them together to determine the elevations. So this is actually more of an elevation map on the moon. You have some very high areas here shown in the red and the white, which are the highest areas on the dark side of the, bar the back side of the moon. And you've got some purple, which is the lowest areas. So red and whites are the highest. The purples and blues are the lowest areas. So you see the structure there. And you also see that there's no Maria, right? On the front side, it's all Maria. Part we see all the time, we see all those different areas where the lava had flowed, where it had been flooded. You don't see that on the back side of the moon because, in part, the way the moon is tidally locked to the Earth, it probably keeps the front side, the crust, a little bit thinner. So the crust was a little bit thinner on the near side of the moon and much easier to break through and flood. So when you got larger impacts here, they didn't quite flood through as easily. So you had some relatively large impacts, but they never actually flooded through. They never cracked through the crust, which might have been a little bit thicker at that, in that portion. So I say it would be kind of cool. Cool to see the moon like that. Cool to see a moon glowing like that, wouldn't it? Okay. Question on that one? And that's the, that's the end, actually. Technically, I'll even tell you, you don't have to worry about this picture for the quiz because I made it up yesterday. So I didn't add this picture in the last minute. So you actually go through this. It goes from the 18th through the 17th, or potentially through the 17th. I don't guarantee I did yesterday's picture either. But. Okay. Other thing I wanted to show you briefly before I get on to where we were. Not quite applicable to this class as much as it was to the other one, but it was a new discovery that was just announced, I think it was late Wednesday, on the, pla the, the planet. How about the moon of Jupiter, Europa? And I don't know if you've seen that, but they actually have discovered a, essentially a great lake. About amount of water equivalent to our, one of our great lakes 
below, very close below the surface of Europa. So Europa, if you recall, I know we talked about it very briefly and kind of breezed through it in our flash through the solar system for this class, but it's the second most, second, second innermost moon of Jupiter. It has a very icy surface. So it has a completely icy surface, solidified water ice, and below that there's this big ocean of water. But what they found now from more recent observations is that there's this jumbled area and below that they've been able to detect is actually a large body of water as well. So there's actually water much closer to the surface than we had previously thought. We thought there was a certain thickness of ice. Now we think that there's actually and have found that there's actually some much, much closer to the surface. So sort of interesting. It gives sort of more credence to the idea that there could be life on this planet on this planet. I'm determined to call it a planet. How about this moon? That there could be life on this moon. It does have liquid water. It has liquid water even relatively close to the surface of it can't quite make it onto the surface because it's no atmosphere and it's too cold. It'll freeze, it'll freeze immediately. But that does flood out a lot of the craters. But again, just a very recent discovery and then there's a short little 30 second video here that they show sort of the, see if I can do that, as to flying to Jupiter, flying by Jupiter there and then going to towards the moon. That's Europa and looking down is sort of trying to show what they're what their finding is as to where the crust had occurred, that there was some faulting in the crust and water had developed in the interior and sort of formed this pattern on the surface. And after reworking back to the pattern, they've been able to determine that there was water, liquid water, and again, not just a little liquid water, not just a puddle, but I mean equivalent to a great, equivalent to one of our Great Lakes. Or maybe was it the whole Great Lake? I don't remember. Was it all of them together? I don't remember now. I read it earlier and now I'm Okay, the whole surface, yeah, I'd have to check again. But there is evidence for more shallow lakes like that. That's one example. There could be more. So again, we'll come back to this in our last chapter, the last week, when we talk about life in the universe. So actually Europa is applicable to this class, because we will cover it again in the last chapter. We've covered it, we'll cover it twice. So one of the few parts of the solar system we'll cover twice when we talk about life. But this is just one that was, again, evidence of liquid water on Europa and this was just announced, according to this, 11-16, so two days, two days ago. Okay. Now on to chapter, now going a little bit further out in the solar system, in the universe. Right? Go from Europa to an active, distant active galaxy. And this is where we were finishing up last time. We were talking about quasars. <coughs> So we'd figured out what a quasar was. Those, those really confusing lines, they weren't some new element that hadn't been discovered yet, as we did in the sun. Remember we talked about that when we talked about the sun? We said helium was discovered in the sun. So was this some new element? No, it was just the lines of hydrogen shifted drastically because this object is moving away very, very quickly from us. So it's very, moving away very fast. The lines are very, very red shifted and therefore it has to be incredibly bright. It has to be one of the brightest objects in the universe. Because otherwise, when, when we use Hubble's law to determine the distance, we know how fast it's moving away. And we looked at that earlier. We could determine the distance from that. Once we determine the distance from that for the, to this quasar, in order for us to be able to see it, 
it has to be brighter than anything else in the universe. One of the most luminous objects in the entire universe. So that's where we'd finished up last time. So we got to figure out what this, what's powering these active galaxies. And active galaxies have a couple different type of properties. They have, first of all, they're all very luminous. They're extremely bright. Well, they weren't extremely bright and we're looking way out in the depths of the universe. We're not going to see them anyway. So we're going to see only very, very high luminosity objects. But they're all, all them, because we can see a lot of these active galaxies and we can see them from the edge of the universe, then they have to have an extremely high luminosity or they'd be invisible by the time, they get to, by the time their energy gets to us. They're not just stars. They're not, they're not just a big giant star with a lot of energy. They have a non-stellar energy emission, meaning it is not that nice black body curve that we looked at early in the course. They have a very different energy emission, so they emit a lot more x-rays than a star would for the given temperature and a lot more radio waves. So they emit across the board all sorts of, all sorts of energy. Their energy also changes very, very quickly, telling us that they're very, very small. So as their energy output changes, they'll get brighter and fainter, sort of the way some of the variable stars did. There were some stars that got brighter and fainter and varied. But they tell us the faster, they, faster those stars vary, the smaller they can be. So these ones, some of these objects that are emitting luminosities of millions and billions of stars have to be as small as our solar system based on the, how their energy varies because it varies so quickly. So not only do they emit a lot of energy, they emit a lot of energy from a very, very small point. We also see explosive activity, jets. We see jets and beams coming out of these areas. And we see broad emission lines. So we get emission lines. The energy being produced excites gases around this active galactic nucleus. But we don't see just a nice narrow emission line like we'd normally see. You'd normally see the emission of only that one exact color. But they're very, very broad. And remember we looked at that it last chapter or earlier this chapter. Which that told us that they were rotating very quickly. Because we're seeing the whole thing at once. But part of it's coming very quickly towards us and shifted towards the blue. And part of us is going very quickly away from us, shifted towards the red. And we can't necessarily see that. We can't see, the, we can't dif- differentiate between the two. We just see a big blur as that entire line gets broadened out. So instead of getting just one emission line, very, very well defined, you get a much broader one. It gets spread out because part of it's moving towards us and part of it's moving away from us. So very rapidly rotating. So what are these? I've probably given it, I've given it away already because I've mentioned it a couple times before. But it's most likely going to be, the only thing that can, that can account for all of these things would be a very large black hole. And we talked about the one in our galaxy as being several million times the mass of the sun. Well, some of the ones in the active galaxies can be 10 or 100 times bigger than that. So here's the model as to what we think might actually occur. There's our black hole at the center. So black hole buried down at the center, very massive black hole with a disk of material around it. 
Now we've seen this before, right? We've seen a, a picture like this when we talked about stars. We had a similar thing around stars as they were forming. It looked very similar to this. A little bit more energetic here because you've got a lot more, you got a lot more, got more powerful energy source at the base. So a very, very strong energy source. So things are moving very, very quickly. And as this rotates around, the disk rotates around, the particles that are being pulled in accelerate to very, very high speeds. Smashing into each other, they can produce a lot of heat, a lot of energy. And then some of the material is actually funneled out through jets. So it's not getting out of the black hole, it's coming out of the disk. Can't get out of the black hole. Once you get inside, you're stuck. But all of this is outside the event horizon of the black hole. The black hole would be way down at the center here. But then you have a jet of material streaming out this way and streaming out this way, away, away from the black hole. And as we see particles, and when I say high speeds, we're talking about 90, 99% the speed of light, 90% the speed of light. Yes, sir? Um, there's a black hole inside of our galaxy. Mm-hmm. No, because the black hole doesn't just suck everything in. It doesn't matter for our orbit around the, around the center of the galaxy. It doesn't matter whether there's a black hole or a five, so four solar mass black hole or four million stars there. The gravity is the same because the amount of gravity is the same when you're that far away. The effects of the black hole only happen when you get close to it. So if you're more than a few times its event horizon away, you can orbit around a black hole just fine. The sun turns into a black hole right now. We orbit around it. Won't change. Our orbit would not change. Get dark, get cold, but our orbit would not change. It wouldn't suck in the planets. It wouldn't suck in Mercury. The planets would still orbit because the way gravity works, it works as though all the matter is concentrated at a point anyway. So in terms of doing a gravity calculation, it thinks everything is calculated at the center. So it's not just pull. It is pulling material in when it gets real close. But if you're far enough away from the black hole, you can orbit around it forever without getting sucked in. So it's not, it's not like the big cosmic vacuum cleaner that's going through and sucking up everything. Sometimes they do, but they're really not. If you get close to it, yes, and all those things we talked about a couple chapters ago do happen, but they're only when you get really close to the black hole. So these, the, the material in the accretion disk getting very close to that would undergo all sorts of effects. Yes, it is spiraling into the black hole. If you get close enough to it, it would. But if you're far enough away, as I said, our orbit around here, we're so many thousands of 25,000 light years or so away from the center of our galaxy. We can orbit around that black hole there forever and it will never, it will never go anyplace. So it is. That black hole is gaining matter because there is matter close to the black hole that it's constantly getting. So if you're feeding the black hole, it will produce more energy. But it's not just sucking in everything outside. It's, at some point, it'll stop getting At some point, it would stop. Yes. And then your energy source turns off and your active galaxy can turn into a normal galaxy. There, if there's not a lot of material near it, it's not producing a lot of energy. So what we're going to see is when we look at these galaxies is that we see active galaxies were present a lot very early in the history of the universe. Not so much anymore. You know, Our galaxy would not be classified in an active galaxy, but there is a black hole at the center. Maybe at some point 10 billion years ago, our galaxy was a moderately active galaxy when the black hole was being fed. Maybe if we feed it again, if we collide with another galaxy and give it some food, you know, smash some stars in there, put some stars in there, some gas clouds, then you could actually reignite it. 
Okay. So that's our model for the central engine as to what it is. Again, a black hole, accretion disk around it, and the two jets. And we looked at those in the radio galaxies. We saw the jets of material. And the magnetic field. You do have a magnetic field here. The magnetic field is not produced by the black hole. Black hole can't have a magnetic field. Black hole had mass, spin, and electrical charge. That was it. But you can get a magnetic field created in the disk around the black hole. So you actually do get magnetic field lines here, which are very important because they'll accelerate the charged particles. So we talked about our, ours was about 3.7 million solar masses. The black hole in the center of our galaxy, very small for, an, for a galactic black hole. Not much compared to some of these active galaxies where you can have billions of times the mass of the sun. So you can have billions of solar masses. So something that is 10, 100, 1,000 times bigger than the black hole at the center of our galaxy. The disk around it in, when we talked about stars, we talked about stars having accretion disks around them. They were little bits of material. But here we're talking about entire clouds of gas and dust. So things that would normally form clusters of stars orbiting around this black hole at faster and faster speeds. And as they, do get clo- as they do get closer, the things that happen to be close to that black hole, they can actually give up a lot of their mass as energy. So 10 to 20% of their mass. That doesn't sound like a big percentage, but remember E equals mc squared. So every little bit of mass, the, little, the mass difference in converting hydrogen to helium is incredibly tiny. It's nowhere near even 1%. Yeah, it's like one ten thousandth of a percent. So here you're converting a big chunk of this. That's producing a lot of energy. That's where all the energy is coming from. So the accretion disk, again, it's whole clouds. It can be clouds. It can be stars that, get, that happen to get close. And again, often get close because of a collision. Collision may disrupt the orbits of those stars and bring some of them in closer to the black hole. So a black hole, as we were just talking about, could be very active. And it could calm down for a billion years if there's nothing feeding it. If there's no energy source, it's going to calm down. But then something can happen that can sort of activate it again. That can cause it to start again producing energy. Okay. And you get some very interesting jets. You get a couple of nice pictures here of some of the jets shown from the black hole. And here you can actually see the disk around the black hole. So you can actually zooming in as you get further and further in on this galaxy. This is a mixture of visible, that's the visible galaxy. You see the radio jets. So you can get some very amazing radio jets coming from these. And if you look further in, when you're looking just at that core, you can see very close into the black hole, you have a disk or material around it. And then you have more material very close to the black hole, probably very close to the event horizon that you can actually see. So you get some very interesting pictures. And you can see that's where where all the energy is being produced is deep down in here and then is spiraling out from this further out along these axes. So it's spiraling out upwards and downwards in this picture along those jets. So that's where all the energy is coming out. That's where we see a lot of the energy. Now, in terms of the rapid rotation, we looked at that. This is the galaxy M87. This is the large galaxy, large elliptical galaxy in the constellation of Virgo. We saw that 
way back. Um, and when we look at it, if we, take, we go zoom in very, very close to the center of this galaxy. So we're not looking at the whole galaxy. We're looking at the very core of the galaxy here. The whole galaxy is filling the room at this point. But we're looking just at the core, just very, very close to the core here. This is the core of the galaxy. There's the jet coming out that we can see. And when you zoom in even further, the nice thing about this galaxy is that it's close to us. It's relatively close that we can actually split it up. And instead of getting one broad spectral line, I can take a spectrum. There's enough light coming that I can get a spectrum from this side. And I can get a spectrum from this side. I get a very strong blue shift on one and a very strong red shift on the other. Remember the amount of the shift tells you how fast those particles are moving. So these particles, as you get very, very close into the core of this galaxy, are moving extremely quickly. Again, that's good evidence for a black hole. You need some source of, you need some source of gravity that's pulling things and keeping them in very, very fast orbits. So keeping them moving very, very quickly. Most of the energy produced is going to be X-rays and gamma rays, and we do see a lot of it. But when you do get that, but you also have the black hole, it does keep, there is some material that is orbiting around it. So you actually get some of it that you see here when you're looking almost straight down the beam. You see everything. You see X-rays, you see gamma rays, you see radio waves, you see everything coming out. So if you're looking straight down through that, but if you're looking this way, if you're looking through, trying to look at it edge on through that cloud of gas, then the radiation that's trying to come straight through there keeps getting absorbed and readmitted and absorbed and readmitted. And its wavelength keeps changing. Its wavelengths get stretched out. So you may have produced a lot of X-rays and gamma rays very close in this accretion disk, close to the black hole. But by the time they've worked their way outward and finally escaped to, to you, you're going to see infrared. Now we had that process in the sun. We had the same thing in the sun. Core of the sun produces energy, right? And it produces, it's annihilating positrons and electrons and they produce gamma rays. Well, we don't get gamma rays coming from the sun. Good for us, right? You know, we don't want a flood of gamma rays coming from the sun. But as those particles work their way out through the atmosphere of the sun, the gamma rays may be absorbed and emitted as several x-rays. These x-rays may be absorbed and emitted in ultraviolet. Then the ultraviolet's reabsorbed. And over many thousands of times, as you slowly decrease the energy and split up the energy into more than single particles, to more particles, more photons, then you've increased the wavelength, or decreased the wave, increased the length of the wave. So you'll have much longer wavelength radiation coming out. So for the sun, we see visible light. If there's enough particles here, we can see more visible and infrared. When you're going through all this dust, we're going to see a lot of infrared radiation as it's being processed through. So again, it depends on how we look at the galaxy. And we saw that with the radio galaxies. If you looked at it one way, you saw the lobes. You saw the nice jets and lobes like we looked at in the last picture. If you look at it the other way around, where you're looking almost straight down the beam, you see everything. Because here, there's not as much dust. The dust is in kind of a ring around it. So if you're coming this way straight out, a lot of those x-rays and gamma rays are escaping right out to you. All right, and the energy that they produce is what we call synchrotron radiation. And what happens with synchrotron radiation is you have electrons and you have a magnetic field. 
when you have electrons in a magnetic field, they follow the magnetic field lines. The magnetic field is very good at containing charged particles. So the magnetic field lines contain them and they spiral around it. But as they spiral around it, they're accelerating, right? They're changing their direction of velocity, if not their speed. They're moving at velocities very close to the speed of light. But they're changing the direction, so they're accelerating. And accelerating charged particles are releasing energy. And that's what we call the synchrotron radiation, which is very strongly visible in the radio portion of the spectrum. So when we look at these and we look at how bright they are in x-rays and visible light and radio waves, we see that they follow a spectrum more like this straight line than they do every, this, this spectrum for everything else we've looked at. Everything else we've looked at so far through stars, different types, even all the different types of stars and the galaxies we've talked about all emitted what we call thermal radiation, the radiation of the stars. Radiation of some hot source just emitting. And it will emit the same curved pattern. This is the first thing we found that emits something different. So it actually, if this were just at a certain temperature, you'd expect, okay, the radio would be a lot less, but the radio is actually a lot higher than it should be. Which is why a lot of these objects were first discovered in the radio. They're very, very bright in the radio. They're actually brighter in the radio than they are in the visible. Whereas a typical star would be significantly brighter in the visible part of the spectrum than in the radio. And that's what we call synchrotron radiation. Now we're going to come back in the next chapter. We talk a little bit more about active galaxies. Um, we're going to finish up. This should be the end. This is the end of this chapter, as I recall. Yes. So that's the end of this chapter. And I'll go through the summary here a little bit. And then we will go on to chapter 16. But chapter 15, that's where you've got to worry about. So if the exam ends when I'm done with, these, with this set of slides, then we'll go on and we'll get a start on chapter 16 since we have such a short week next week between an exam and a holiday. Unless everybody wants to come in on Friday. No, no didn't think so. Me either. <laughs> so, thought I'd try. Okay. No, you can't say I didn't offer. You know, we missed a day. Oh, but I meant to mention that earlier. The day we missed. We had a day that we missed way back. If you look on WebCT on your attendance grade, I gave everybody three points for that day. So you didn't lose, you didn't lose the day because since we're not making it up, normally I left it off until we found out we, found out we weren't going to make it up. Now we're not going to make it up. I just gave everybody credit so it doesn't affect your, affect your grades. So you did get three points added in for that day. Whether you were, well, nobody was here, so everybody got three points for it. So, three points, yay. Okay. So let's finish up chapter 15. Again, we talked about the different classifications of galaxies. We had spiral, barred spiral, elliptical, irregular, and one more I didn't put up there. The hard one to remember? No? No one? Lenticulars. So those are the five different types. And then we went through and subdivided each one. So spiral galaxies and barred spirals were classifi classified based on how big the bulge was. So a very small bulge was a class, and, a very and as the bulges got bigger, you changed the class. So they were all spirals, but they could have a different subclass based on that. Ellipticals are classified based on how squished they are. So a very round elliptical, almost a sphere, would be an E0, and a very squashed one would be an E7. Irregular galaxies are essentially all irregular. You don't have, that's just what they are. Lenticulars can be either regular with an S0 or a barred SB0. 
So that was the basic classifications that we did. We d astronomers love standard candles. Standard candles are objects that have the same luminosity. So if we find one and we learn how bright they are, we know how bright all of them are. And the Lyrae stars were one because all the Lyrae stars were the same brightness. So once we found a star, measured its period, said it's an Lyrae star, I know how bright it is, I know how far away it is. Same thing with a type 1 supernova. Type 1 supernova, once we identify it in a galaxy, we immediately know we can identify the type by, based by its, on its spectrum, and we can immediately determine its distance. Those are very important, especially the type 1 supernovae for what we're coming up in the next couple of chapters. Because that is our only basis to get distances other than Hubble's law when we get further out in the universe. Cepheids don't quite fit into this because they're not uniform luminosities. There's a relationship for them. The longer the period, the brighter the Cepheid. But they're not considered a standard candle in the same, in the same way. Because they're not all exactly the same. We had our Milky Way, local group, local group, part of the local group. Uh, three large spiral galaxies and a bunch of little elliptical and irregular, little dwarf elliptical and irregular galaxies. But that's a very small group, very small cluster of galaxies. Much larger ones contain many thousands of galaxies. And then Hubble's law. Galaxies recede from us faster the further or farther away they are. So the farther away the galaxies are, the faster they're trying to get away from us. And then active galaxies we talked about. Their big differences were that they were much more luminous, much brighter than other galaxies, and they, were, didn't, have, they weren't, didn't have give out stellar radiation dominantly. They were dominated by the synchrotron radiation that we just talked about. Some examples of the active galaxies were Seifert galaxies, radio galaxies, quasars. We looked at all of those, talked a little bit about those. Seifert galaxies looked like a spiral galaxy. Radio galaxy ha had intense radio emissions. Quasars were moving very, very high speeds away from us. They all have a very, very small core, so very compact, and emitting, many of them are emitting high speed jets. And we think that the source of their energy is a supermassive black hole. So a large black hole at the center. The matter converts to energy and that produces the power. So if we can convert 10% of every little bit of matter that's going, to, going into this black hole into energy, that's a tremendous amount of energy. I mean, the sun emits a lot of energy and it doesn't convert anywhere near that percentage. It's a very tiny, if you look at the mass difference between four hydrogen atoms and one helium atom, it's very, very tiny. You know, you're not talking percents. You're talking many frac tiny fractions of a percent. Here you can be converting 10 or 20% of all the matter that's going in to energy, and that's going to be incredibly bright. Questions on chapter 15? Or other questions on chapter 15? No? All right. So that, that is where the exam ends. So your exam is made up through there. I knew we figured we'd get through that. And I, then we'll start on chapter 16, which is getting ready for the final. Yay. All right, let's just start right there. Again, we're coming back. There's a little more on galaxies. So it's sort of a continuation. We went over the basics of galaxies this time. We're going to talk a little bit more about galaxies and lead into what we call the dark matter. So. We're going to start learning that most of the matter that we see when we look at something like this and we see 
couple nice galaxies here. I see a nice bright one here, a nice bright one here. But you can also see everything fuzzy on here is a galaxy. So there's another galaxy. There's one, there's one, there's one, there's one, there's... There's a lot of galaxies in the picture. But all the matter that we see in here in terms of stars and galaxies is actually only a tiny fraction of the matter in the universe. So everything that we're used to, all the hydrogen and helium and all that kind of stuff that we're used to is only a little fraction of what we see. So we're going to talk about dark matter specifically. We talked about a little bit in terms of the Milky Way galaxy and how much material was there and how there has to be more material than we see in the Milky Way. Two, three, four times more than what we actually see. Count up all the stars, all the nebulae, all the 21 centimeter hydrogen emission, everything that we can see in any wavelength, add that all up and we're still missing two or three more galaxies worth of material. Galaxy collisions. Galaxies actually collide together. Stars didn't collide. We've never really talked about a star collision because the stars are so small relative to their distances that the odds of them colliding are very tiny. Galaxies actually collide all the time. So we see, we'll see lots of evidence of galaxy collision and we'll leave that to talk about first of all how galaxies formed but collisions are much more related to how they evolved. And I'm trying to get through this way too fast, huh? We'll zip through it today. We'll get, we'll get, all, the, we'll get all the rest of the class done today. <laughs> no. Okay. Test then hopeful final on Monday and be done? No. Okay. Black holes. So we're going to come back. This is kind of what we were just talking about. We're going to come back and do a little bit more on black holes and active galaxies. And then we're going to talk about the universe on the biggest scales. So we've been talking about the very little scales. We talked about things. Most, most of our class was talking about our galaxy. So far, until this last chapter, we actually got outside of our galaxy. We're going to start looking well beyond our galaxy and well beyond even the little clusters that we've looked at. The Virgo cluster with only some 4,000 galaxies. We're going to be looking at the biggest scales of the universe. So, this graph should look familiar. We looked at the rotation curve of the Milky Way, shown in pink here. And as you get further and further away, what it told us was that those stars are rotating faster and faster and faster. They continue to rotate faster or stay at the same speed. They shouldn't do that. If we get outside most of the mass of the galaxy, so once you're out, once, when there's mass beyond you, you can still account for this. When you get outside that, so if you're looking at stars that are orbiting way out here, which look like they're really to the edge of the galaxy, this should start going down, start curving downward. So the Milky Way should actually curve down once you get to the edge. The stars should be moving slower. That's what we see in the solar system. In the solar system, the planets move fastest speeds close to the sun. And when you get out to Neptune, Uranus, Neptune, Pluto, and objects out there, they're moving extremely slowly. So if you did this plot for the solar system, it would be pretty much a curve going straight down. They'd be going slower and slower as you got further away. We don't see that in galaxies. But that allows us to, this, this method allows us to determine the masses because we can determine how much matter must be around in order to account for this curve. So when we, we can measure the curve, we can look at the rotation of the galaxy very easily as we look at different parts as we go further away from it. And as far out as we can actually get a spectrum, as far out as we can get a spectrum, if we can get a spectrum of that part at the edge of the galaxy, we can determine the distance. We can determine the rotation and therefore the mass. 
and we find that there's a lot more mass. Another way to do it, we look a little further out. We looked at those clusters. We had our cluster of galaxies. We had our local group. We can measure that. We can measure all the speeds of the different galaxies in the cluster. Now they're going to have random speeds. Some are going towards us. Some are going away. But depending on their average speed and their distribution of speeds, we can tell how much matter there has to be in the cluster to keep them bound together. If these galaxies are moving extremely quickly and there isn't a lot of mass there, they're not going to be bound together and eventually this galaxy is going to float off in this direction and that one's going to go in that direction and the, the cluster will dissipate. Because the clusters are still present after many billions of years, there must be enough matter here to hold them together. So there has to be enough matter here and we can make a measure of that. We can tell how much matter, just by looking at how their velocities go, we can tell how much matter is needed. And you can similarly do it like we did with others. If you just have a pair of galaxies, you can look at a red shift and a blue shift. You can get orbital parameters for a pair of galaxies and again, determine the mass Kepler's law, Kepler's law way by determining two objects orbiting each other. So these are all different ways to measure masses of galaxies. Masses of galaxies will get an overall mass of the cluster of galaxies by just looking at their motions. The faster they're moving, the more gravity you have to have to hold them together. So the more matter you have to have to hold them together. The slower they're moving, well you don't need all that much matter because they're not moving very fast. They're not trying to escape. There we go. So when we look at galaxies, galaxies need maybe three times more matter than we actually see. Maybe ten. Now again, that's everything you see. So we see one galaxy's worth of material. So I need between three and ten more galaxies worth of matter piled in with that galaxy, associated with that galaxy, to account for the motions we see. In order to account for that motion, in order to explain the way the stars are rotating, we need between three and ten times more matter than we can observe. That's a lot of extra matter we need. And that's what we're calling dark matter. It gets even worse when we talk about clusters of galaxies. It can be 10 to 100 times more mass. So if you look at that cluster that has 4,000, 4,500, 5, about 5,000 galaxies in the Virgo cluster, well that means you need between 50 and 100,000 more galaxies worth of matter that you don't see. So for all those thousands of galaxies you see, for each one of them you need 10 to 100 more galaxies worth of matter spread out through that, through that cluster in order to explain the motions that we see. So there's a lot of dark matter in the universe. A lot of stuff that we cannot see at any wavelength. It's not visible to us. Now the other thing there that could be, and I like to put this in kind of as an aside because the book usually doesn't go through it. The other thing that could be different and we think we understand gravity. Do we understand gravity completely? And I also like to put that out as a thought because Newton's gravity lasted for a couple hundred, couple hundred years and Einstein changed it a little bit on very small scales especially with black holes. But is Einstein's gravity, is gravity right on the biggest scales? We think it is. But what if gravity behaves a little bit differently and that's the difference? So there's all something to think. You think of, I mean, they think of things as settled in terms of gravity, but there's constantly research being done, and there will come a time when there is a better theory of gravity than Einstein's. You know, 
Newton's lasted a couple hundred years. If Einstein's has not even been a, has been barely not even a hundred years yet, just about coming up on a hundred year anniversary very shortly. So I mean, there's also the possibility that maybe we don't understand gravity on the very largest scales the way we think we do. Uh, Newton, Einstein showed that gravity behaved differently on smaller scales than it did according to Newton. Maybe there's something else that shows that it behaves differently on larger scales. So. That's not gone through in your book. It's not necessarily right. I'm just saying there's something to keep in the thought out that we tend to, tend to get focused on one thing, that, gra that gravity has to be right. You've got one theory. And usually when things change, it's when somebody like Einstein comes up with something completely new. OK. So what do we see? Now, we do see some dark matter. So it's not complete that we don't see any. We do see some evidence of dark matter. Within the clusters, there's an extremely hot gas, about 10 million degrees. It's just scattered throughout the, just diffused throughout the cluster. So we can measure that because we can measure its extreme emission. It's going to be very hot, 10 million degrees. It's going to be emitting x-rays, gamma rays. So you'll get an x-ray emission from this, from this whole cluster. And you can detect that entire gap, but it's spread throughout the cluster. So you can actually map in terms of x-rays here, x-rays, where you see the concentration of x-rays, towards the center of the cluster. And as you map it out, it's sort of distributed around the whole cluster. So you do see some gas. Denser at the center, so it's built like the cluster of galaxies. More galaxies towards the center, more gas towards the center, and less as you go further out. That can account for some of the dark matter, but not all of it. Some other evidence that we have that there is gas between, within the cluster is Galaxies like this, we see, we see a number of galaxies like this moving through clusters. And as they move through, you see the galaxy here and you get the way the arms, instead of going straight out, are getting swept back. So if a galaxy was moving relatively quickly through a gas, you can actually get, again, here's some of it where they're, or they're really swept back here looking in the radio. Well, mixture of radio and visual, but radio, you can see how the lobes get swept very strong behind it. So we call a head-to-tail galaxy. Looks almost like a comet. You have the head of it here, and then the tail sweeping behind it. Similar thing in the other when you look at just this interior, just look at this section. It's probably because those, t those jets are colli it's colli they're colliding with the gas. As it's moving through, they kind of get left behind. So this galaxy is moving quickly enough through the intercluster glass, gas, it gets left behind and gives us this distinctive head-tail pattern. So another piece of evidence for this intracluster gas. And again, it's an extremely hot gas in between the galaxies of the cluster. It's not concentrated in a galaxy, it's, between, it's, within, the it's within the cluster of galaxies itself. It's probably a very old gas dating from the origin of the universe, but not nearly enough of it to account for, I mean, you can account for galaxies worth of matter, but you're not accounting for hundreds and hundreds of galaxies worth of matter for each galaxy. So you can account for some of the dark matter. And now, actually, once you can measure it, then you can actually count how much it is there. But it's not, en not nearly enough to explain the motions of the galaxies within clusters or of the galaxies, the galaxies within the clusters or galaxies that are orbiting each other. It's not nearly enough gas to explain that. And it still doesn't significantly help us with all the gas, with all the orbits of the 
individual stars in the galaxies. There's still a lot of matter that's associated with each galaxy that we do not, that we do not know and yet what it is. Okay, we're just about, let me see what's next. Yeah, we'll stop. We'll not do galaxy collisions right now. We'll start with galaxy collisions next time. So we will do that on Wednesday. I'll get it right for this class instead of telling them I'll finish that up on Monday. Unless you want me to lecture while you're taking the test and we can get double work done that way. I can give you a lecture while you're <laughs> If it's on the material that's on the test, we'll do it, right? <laughs> I could see that coming. But no, I will finish this up. We'll probably finish a good chunk of 16 on Wednesday, which will keep us just about on schedule because then we have 17 and 18 to finish afterwards. So, if you want to go ahead and take a break and I'll get the computers fired up for a lab. It's not a sky lab this time. It's a little bit different one we're going to try this time. So, questions, questions? No?